Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, The Language of Religion, Part 3 Secondly, there is a religious experience, ranging from the most ordinary experiences of the believer in worship, forgiveness, dereliction, and divine help, up to the highly special experiences of the mystics. Through such experience, Christians believe that they get a sort of verification, or perhaps sometimes falsification, of their tenets. Such experience cannot be conveyed to one another, much less to unbelievers, except by language which shares to some extent the nature of poetic language. That is what leads some people to suppose that it can be nothing but emotion. For, of course, if you accept the view that poetic language is purely emotional, then things which can be expressed only in poetic language will presumably be emotions. But if we don't equate poetic language with emotional language, the question is still open. Now, it seems to me a mistake to think that our experience in general can be communicated by precise and literal language and that there is a special class of experiences, say, emotions, which cannot. The truth seems to me the opposite. There is a special region of experiences which can be communicated without poetic language, namely, its common measurable features. But most experience cannot. To be incommunicable by scientific language is, so far as I can judge, the normal state of experience. All our sensual experience is in this condition, though this is somewhat veiled from us by the fact that much of it is very common and therefore everyone will understand our reference to it at a hint. But if you have to describe to a doctor any unusual sensation, you will soon find yourself driven to use pointers of the same nature, essentially, as Asia's enchanted boat. An army doctor who suspected you of malingering would soon reduce you to halting and contradictory statements. But if by chance you had not been malingering, he would have cut himself off from all knowledge of what might have turned out an interesting case. But are there, as I have claimed, other experiences besides sensation? and, of course, emotion, which are in this predicament? I think there are. But, frankly, I am now getting into very deep water indeed. I am almost sure I shall fail to make myself clear. But the attempt must be made. It seems to me that imagining is something other than having mental images. When I am imagining, say, Hamlet on the battlements, or Heracles' journey to the Hyperboreans, there are images in my mind. They come and go rapidly, and assist what I regard as the real imagining only if I take them all as provisional makeshifts, each to be dropped as soon as it has served its instantaneous turn. If any one of them becomes static and grows too clear and full, imagination proper is inhibited. A too lively visual imagination is the reader's and writer's bane. As toys, too elaborate and realistic, spoil children's play. They are, in the etymological sense, the awful, the off-fall of imagination, the slag from the furnace. Again, 
thinking seems to me something other than the succession of linked concepts which we use when we successfully offer our thought to another in argument. That appears to me to be always a sort of translation of a prior activity. And it was the prior activity which alone enabled us to find these concepts and links. The possibility of finding them may be a good test of the value of that previous activity. Certainly, the only test we have. It would be dangerous to indulge ourselves with the fancy of having valuable profundities within us, which, unfortunately, we can't get out. But perhaps in others, where we are neutrals, we are sometimes not quite wrong in thinking that a sensible man, unversed in argument, has better thought than his mishandling of his own case suggests. If we lend him a helping hand, and he replies, Of course, that's it. That is what I really meant to say. He is not always a hypocrite. Finally, in all our joys and sorrows, religious, aesthetic, or natural, I seem to find things, almost indescribably, thus. They are about something. They are a byproduct of the logically prior act of attending to, or looking towards, something. We are not really concerned with the emotions. The emotions are our concern about something else. Suppose that a mother is anxious about her son, who is on active service. It is no use going to her with the offer of some drug, or hypnotism, or spell that would obliterate her anxiety. What she wants is not the cessation of anxiety, but the safety of her son. I mean, on the whole. On one particular wakeful night, she might, no doubt, be glad of your magic. Nor is it any use offering her a magic which would prevent her from feeling any grief if her son were killed. What she dreads is not grief, but the death of her son. Similarly, it is no use offering me a drug which will give me over again the feelings I had on first hearing the overture to the magic flute. The feelings, by themselves, the flutter in the diaphragm, are of very mediocre interest to me. What gave them their value was the thing they were about. So in our Christian experiences. No doubt we experience sorrow when we repent and joy when we adore. But these were byproducts of our attention to a particular object. If I have made myself at all clear, but I probably have not, you see what, for me, it adds up to. The very essence of our life as conscious beings, all day and every day, consists of something which cannot be communicated except by hints, similes, metaphors, and the use of those emotions, themselves not very important, which are pointers to it. I am not in the least talking about the unconscious, as psychologists understand it. At least, though it cannot be fully introspected, this region is, in many of us, very far from unconscious. I say, in many of us. But I sometimes wonder whether we may not be survivals. Evolution may not have ceased. And in evolution, a species may lose old powers as well as acquire, possibly in order to acquire, new ones. There seem to be people about 
to whom imagination means only the presence of mental images, not to mention those like Professor Ryle who deny even that, to whom thought means only unuttered speech, and to whom emotions are final, as distinct from the things they are about. If this is so, and if they increase, then all real communications between them and the earlier type of man will finally be impossible. Something like this may be happening. You remember Wells's Country of the Blind. Now its inhabitants, being men, must have descended from ancestors who could see. During centuries, a gradual atrophy of sight must have spread through the whole race. But at no given moment till it was complete, would it, probably, have been equally advanced in all individuals. During this intermediate period, a very interesting linguistic situation would have arisen. They would have inherited from their unblind ancestors all the visual vocabulary, the names of the colors, words like see, and look, and dark, and light. There would be some who still use them in the same sense as ourselves, archaic types, who saw the green grass and perceived the light coming at dawn. There would be others who had faint vestiges of sight and who used these words with increasing vagueness to describe sensations so evanescent as to be incapable of clear discrimination. The moment at which they begin to think of them as sensations in their own eyeballs, not as externals, would mark an important step. And there would be a third class who has achieved full blindness, to whom see was merely a synonym for understand, and dark for difficult. And these would be the vanguard, and the future would be with them, and a very little cross-examination of the archaic type that still saw would convince them that its attempt to give some other meaning to the old visual words was merely a tissue of vague, emotive uses and category mistakes. This would be as clear to them as it is clear to many modern people that Job's words, But now mine eye hath seen thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, are, and can be, nothing but the expression of an emotion. As I say, this sometimes crosses my mind. But I am full of doubts about the whole subject and everything I have said is merely tentative. Perhaps I should also point out that it is not apologetics. I have not tried to prove that the religious sayings are true, only that they are significant. If you meet them with a certain goodwill, a certain readiness to find meaning, for if they should happen to contain information about real things, you will not get it on any other terms. As for proof, I sometimes wonder whether the ontological argument did not itself arise as a partially unsuccessful translation of an experience without concepts or words. I don't think we can initially argue from the concept of a perfect being to its existence. But did they really, inside, argue from the experience glory that it could not be generated subjectively? Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow 
and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>